As 2023 draws to a close, there are many, many opinions about what this year has provided. The character of those opinions is, in most cases, shaped by one's worldview and by one's experiences. In short, many have expressed a, quote, good riddance, unquote, attitude towards 2023. They're glad to see it go. And primarily, that's because they can find little of a positive nature to reflect on. In New York City, you may or may not be aware of this, but in New York City on December the 28th, that is officially Good Riddance Day. And people gather in Times Square and they write down the things that they're glad to see retire with the old year and then they set them on fire. And that's the way they end the year, by getting rid of those things. And it's Good Riddance Day in New York. Typically, notes that are burned include statements about cancer and illnesses, and taxes, inflation, insecurity, bad memories, bad relationships, and the like. Some of the notes, if you go online and read them, were funny, some were silly, uh, some were ironic, and others were deadly serious. Now, as is usually the case, viewing things through the lenses of their worldview and experience, pundits from various walks of life have been analyzing the old year as it draws to a close, and of course predicting things for the new year as it opens. And while there are a few notes of optimism from the chronically optimistic about the new year, there's a general sense really of uncertainty and uneasiness. And it kind of runs like an undercurrent in the predictions among many of those who are publicly being asked to give their opinions. It seems they have a sense of what's coming, but they don't want to state it in plain terms for fear that it will upset people or that it might even actually come to pass. And so they're afraid to speak it for fear that it might happen. Doing some research online, it was interesting to read that the U.S. economy, according to one major financial publication, was going to be fine in 2024. And as proof, it went on to mention the possibility that interest rates could maybe drop. And then they went on to explain that, however, inflation will linger, the housing market will continue to slump, taxes will increase across the board, and the quest for controlling the climate will produce a shift in which nation dominates the economic world. But other than that, everything's fine. It's all on a good trajectory for the future. And you just wonder how those two realities uh, balance one another. In short, for every positive prediction, you can easily find a negative one. Thankfully for the Christian, our outlook on life, guided by our worldview, is larger than this and far more certain. We know that in general, fallen men and women will continue to sin. 
we're not anticipating or expecting anything different than that. That's, we know that. We, we expect that. And we know that the world will continue to demonstrate the effects of the fall. That will, they will, those effects will continue to manifest themselves as the year unfolds. We don't anticipate that things are constantly getting better. They are as they are and have always been. As we noted this morning, Solomon really spoke timelessly when he said what has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done and there's nothing new under the sun. But as believers, we know that it's not what men and women predict that will shape 2024, but what our God providentially designs. And that's what will rule the year ahead. And it'll do it just as it is done so every year. In Psalm 22 and verse 28, there David says, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. He's always done that. He always will do that. He's the one, according to Psalm 66 and verse 7, who rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves, the psalmist says. And finally, in Psalm 103, verse 19, we read, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. That's the God we worship and serve. And so because he rules over all, because he has this authority over all the nations and all the events and circumstances of time, we realize that this year, this coming year, is going to fall out as he has providentially designed. Now as we get closer to the end of this year, and the new year looms ahead, really just a few hours away now, I thought we might take some time and some counsel from the 24th Psalm. Take some time to consider and take some counsel from this 24th Psalm. And the first thing we see as we look at this Psalm is that the world is his and not ours. And it's a great place to begin, I think. The world is his and not ours. See how it begins in verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, it would be easy to entertain you this afternoon with some of the fantastic things said by self-appointed climate experts, experts like Mr. Bill Gates, who considers himself an expert on climate change. And I don't think that Bill Gates and his friends will probably be marking the fact that this 2024 is the 10th anniversary of the startling announcement by one of the most respected experts in the field of climate change in 2014 that within two years, that is by 2016, all the ice in the Arctic would be melted. I don't think they'll be celebrating the anniversary of that prediction this year. Um, because unfortunately the ice is all still there. But rather than reviewing their long history of errors and failed predictions, let's just consider what the Word of God says here. A different psalm, 
was sung each day in the temple, particularly as the uh, drink offering was poured out. This psalm, Psalm 24, was sung on the first day of the week from the beginning. On Sunday, on our Sunday, our Lord's Day, in the temple, as the priests poured out their drink offerings for that day, they sang this hymn of praise, Psalm 24. And it has been since ancient times considered an Advent psalm, encompassing originally the coming of the Messiah among the Jews. They saw this as a psalm to be associated with Messiah's birth and his coming into the world. And later, among Christians, it has become associated with not only his birth, but with his entrance into Jerusalem uh, to die for sinners, his resurrection from the grave, and his ascension into heaven, and his coming again in power and great glory. So they've kind of put it all together. The Christians have put this in this psalm all together with all of those concepts of Christ coming and appearing. And understanding that as the overarching theme, it seems quite appropriate that it should begin this Advent hymn with the creative rights and authority of God. The earth is Jehovah's and the fullness thereof. The world, or literally the fruit-bearing world, and they that dwell therein. Look abroad. All this great and mighty world, says Alfred Edersheim, all its riches and all its beauty, all its fruitfulness and all its people are the property and dominion of our covenant God. It doesn't matter that the world stands in a state of wicked rebellion against the Lord, defying his laws and spurning his word. The earth is his, and he can shake it. He can cover it with sleet and snow. <coughs> he can cover it with drought, or he can drown it in a deluge, because ultimately it's all his. And as this hymn focuses on the Messiah, we understand that the world is his, that is the Messiah's, by two rights. First, as God, and secondly, by the right of creation. <coughs> but as the Messiah, he has it by the right of donation. So let me repeat that. By two rights, as God, by the right of creation, and as the Messiah, uh, by the right of donation. As a creative right, we see that in passages like Colossians 1, 16 and 17. In Colossians 1, verse 16, we read, For by him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So there's the right of creation. All things hold together by his authority and by his right. And he rules and reigns over them by that authority. But it's also an assigned authority. If you turn to Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16, 
In Matthew 28, 16, we read that the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And this is after his resurrection. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So there's the donated right. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me as the Messiah, as the anointed one of Christ. And interestingly, we see both of these things together in Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, there's the donation, through whom also he created the world. And there's the creative right. So the two rights are side by side there. Christ is the King of glory, Lord of hosts, even Almighty God. For he that made all is Lord over all. He that is the creator of heaven and earth is almighty and able to do whatsoever he will and more than he will do, says John Boyce. I'm going to repeat that for you. Christ is the king of glory. I know you're not, I don't have it in notes for you, so it's a little hard to follow quotes. He is the king of glory, Lord of hosts, even almighty God. For he that made all is Lord over all. He that is the creator of heaven and earth is almighty and able to do whatsoever he will. And we, we all are, are very much familiar with that language, right? He can do all his holy will. But Boyce goes on to say, and more than he will do. That he has the authority and the power to do more than he will do. And those last few words of John Boyce, they seem strange at first reading. But the uncertainty, I think, is all cleared up when you remember that Jesus said he could raise up children to Abraham out of the stones if he willed to do so. He had the power, but not the inclination. And that's what Boyce is referring to here. All this authority, all this power belongs to Christ. And he is able to do all his holy will, and he is able to do even what is not his will to do. He can do it by the authority and the power that he has. It's just he's not inclined to do it, and so he doesn't. But he's not limited to doing it. He could do it if it was his will to do so. Now, by these rights, all things are his. Not just one tribe, not just one people, not even just the church, but all things are his. They all belong to him. Now, I think it's good for us to enter the new year and let go of the old one with this understanding of things. The God who has promised to work all things together for your good is able to make good that promise both concerning those things that are done and past now, as well as all those things which lie ahead. That's a wonderful thing to be able to stand 
at this point and look back and we can think of where we've come short and where we've failed and so on, where we've been tested and challenged in our lives and so on, and know that whatever those things were in the year that's now gone, the Lord is able to work all those things together for our good. And we don't need to be concerned about how that's going to turn out or if it's going to come back in some way to haunt us or hamper us or in some way restrict us. It'll, it'll work together for our good, whatever it is, however it came to pass. And we can look into the new year, and whatever awaits us there, we can rest in the promise that it will work together by the hand of God for our good, because this God, who is our God, has all authority and power in heaven and on earth. We may safely commit the keeping of all unto the Lord as unto a faithful creator. To him we would entrust not only the keeping of our souls, but of our bodies also, and of those whom we love, says Edersheim. So that's the first thing. We can stand here and we can look back over the past year and say, the Lord will work all that together for my good and for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we can look forward into the new year and say, we don't know what waits, awaits us there, and some of the predictions are not very good, but whatever awaits us there, because of the power and authority of God as the creator of all things, we know that it too will all work together for our good. Now, the second thing this psalm draws our attention to is that the gospel is still the only way to God. But the new year, the terms haven't changed. The terms for lots of other things change with the passing of a year and a new year kicking in, but there's no change here. You see that reflected in verses 3 through 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Okay, we could put this back in 2023. Who in 2023 will ascend to the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place. And now we can come to the new year and say, okay, this is a new year. Who this year will be able to ascend the hill of the Lord and be able to stand in his holy place? And the answer remains the same. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, of the God of Jacob, excuse me. Now, as was established in verses 1 and 2, all men and women are the subject of the king of kings. But who among those subjects can approach in peace and have interaction with the Lord who made them and rules over them. And as John Boyce puts it, all men and women are subject to the kingdom of his power and authority, but not all are his subjects in the kingdom of grace. And if we ask who can have these things, the answer comes back in this list. Those who have clean hands a pure heart, and a true tongue. 
And if we ask ourselves, well, how does somebody find that? How do we find that in the coming year? Or how was it found in the past year? The answer is the same. These things are attainable only by faith in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. When Peter was defending his ministry among the Gentiles, who he said would, should hear the gospel and believe, he said this, and this is Acts chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. Peter said, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, that is, the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So how do you get a clean heart? By faith. And Peter makes that point here. It's by faith. Faith in what? Faith in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. It's Jesus who teaches us that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks and the work of the hands are directed. If the heart has been made new by faith, the hands and the tongue follow. And it's those who look to Christ in faith who alone may approach the throne and have a place before him. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So who can stand in his holy place? Who can ascend to his mountain? The one who is righteous in his sight. Where does that righteousness come from? By faith. Faith in what? Faith in Christ. Now all this we know well as believers. But we're living in a very strange time. And we need to be constantly praying for grace. The grace, beloved, to believe. Every institution is under attack. And with this assault comes a series of battles regarding God's truth. The nominal Christian, those who, who we would call nominal Christians, they are already falling prey to the trend. They're already compromising what they believe. They're already turning their backs on the word of God. They're already reinterpreting God's word to, to open the doors wider and, and to make it more comfortable for things that are clearly contrary to the word of God. That's already going on among nominal Christians. But there is even some weakness being shown now in the citadels of orthodoxy. Where after the great modernist fundamentalist struggle settled down and it became clear who were the ones who were maintaining orthodoxy and who were the ones who were compromising those things. And it, and it sort of settled. We're living in an age now where it's beginning to show cracks and fissures in the places where orthodoxy was once expected to be found. And beloved, there's no end in sight of those attacks and the attempts to outflank and infiltrate by the enemy. The church, we're told, we're being told now, and we were talking about this this morning in Sunday school, the church, we're told, must broaden its views 
It has to loosen its doctrines. It must give up the old ways and find a new path for the modern age, for the enlightened age. Has God truly promised to bless where once he promised to curse? That happened? No, we don't believe that for a moment. But there's a whole community of Christians, as they call themselves, out there who believe that, who teach that, who are resting in that. Has God really withdrawn his blessing from those whose hearts are cleansed by faith and extended his blessing to the wicked and the dishonest, whose hearts retain it uh, remain in a state of rebellion against him and his word? Has that happened? We can sit here this afternoon and say, we know that's not true. But there's many Christians who, though they would never say it that way, practically live their lives and believe that way. They believe that the Lord, in areas where he has said he will not bless but curse, today he will bless those things. And in fact, that's the the way of blessing. That's the world that we're living in now. But the truth is that that's the will of man and not of God. All things are his and not theirs. And they don't get to change the goalposts, as we like to say, or speak for God rather than letting God speak for himself. Look again at at what he says here. He who will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Who will get that? The one with clean hands. The one with an honest heart before the Lord. An honest heart determined by the word of God. Not the opinions of the culture of the day. Or of even those who pose as leaders of truth. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That one who ascends to him because of his faith. It were altogether a misunderstanding to conceive that anything less than the blessing of God in Christ and the possession of righteousness in every sense, both justification and sanctification, constitute the distinctive beliefs which the church enjoys, says Alfred Edersheim. Well, who's going to receive these things? The ones who continue in rebellion against the Lord, who the Lord says are under a curse, but men says are blessed? No. It's the one with clean hands and pure heart and a true tongue. But it's not hard, beloved, to envision a day when the state will take it upon itself, and I don't mean necessarily the state of Washington, I mean government in general, will take it upon itself to define true doctrine. We're almost there now. It's it's very close. Where the state is going to say, what is true doctrine and what is a true church? And it won't do so alone. No, it will appeal to the broader church 
for help. And together, they will begin to determine whether teaching like this that you find here in Psalm 24, whether that's disinformation that has to be prohibited. And if you imagine that's a long way off, you're not aware of the world you're living in right now. We're very close to it. Where what we have taught today will be labeled disinformation that must be stopped. And growing pressures like this will lead many to abandon sound doctrine to seek and curry the favor of men and women. But in doing so, they will lose the favor of God. The Savior himself warned of such times. In Matthew 24, in verse 9, Jesus said in, in verses 9 through 13, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And those last words, and I don't mean this as a pun, those last words are chilling. The love of many will grow cold their love for Christ, their love for the gospel, their love for the word of God will grow cold. And they will be willing to trade it away for the comforts of this world. Paul expanded on all this by the Holy Spirit when he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in verses 1 through 5. He said, but understand this, Timothy, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. And again, there's that chilling note at the end. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So they'll be engaging in all these things that, that's in that list heartlessness and, and being unappeasable and slanderous and having no self-control and doing it under the appearance of godliness, but denying the power, the authority of Christ. Not he who saith or sings so many psalms, nor he who fasts or watches for so many days, nor he who preaches to others, nor he who is gentle, upright, and kind. In short, not he who understands all arts, languages, and has all virtues and good works which have ever been written or spoken about, but he only who has the one qualification, 
that he is inwardly and outwardly clean may approach. That's Martin Luther talking about the false expectations of men. If you covet the blessing of the Lord, if you're among a generation that seeks such things, you know that they can only be found in and through the Savior and in accord with the Word of God. And that's true no matter what the world says or how often it says it, no matter how much men and women fuss and fume and demand change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by divers' strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them, says Paul. We follow Christ, and nothing has changed. David says here in Psalm 24, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The Savior put it this way, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then finally, we can take great comfort from this psalm because everything is working towards the coming of the King of glory. All of it. You come to the end, beginning in verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. As we stand at the end of 2023 and look into 2024, I would tell you this. Fear not, beloved. Everything is on schedule and everything is on time. It's all unfolding just as it's supposed to. It's all on schedule. Everything's on time. We are a revolution around the sun nearer to the year, the month, the week, the day, the hour when the King of Glory comes down. That's where we are. And nothing's out of sorts. Nothing's out of order. It's all happening just as he planned. Remember the words of Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water, and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. I just want to pause here for a minute as I quote this passage from Peter. 
because you could miss this because you don't have notes before you there. But remember how verse 2 ends of Psalm 24? What's it talking about? How he established the earth on what? On the waters and in the rivers. And here we are at the end in Second Peter, and Peter is referring to the fact that men have forgotten that through the water the Lord judged the world. By the same word, he says, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He comes as king of glory. By your homage, own the glory due unto his name. Angels' trumpets sound his march. Angels' voices proclaim his praise. Earth, your builder, world, your preserver comes. Praise him. Church, your redeemer, your bridegroom, Lord and Savior comes. Praise him. Gates, which his hand has reared, Gates of earth, gates of heaven, lift up your heads, lift up, see your God. Those are the words of Alfred Edersheim. He says, look all of you, he is coming. And when he comes, it will be in power and great glory. And everything's on time. Everything's according to schedule. And it's all all right. The King of glory is coming. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, mighty in battle. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement it is to our hearts. We thank you for this ancient psalm sung so long among your people. And we pray, Lord, that it might ring in our ears through the new year. Remembering that you are the Lord who has created all, all things belong to you. Remembering, Lord, that the way of salvation has not changed and our hope is still the same. Remembering, Lord, that everything's on time according to your plan. And when the time is ripe, as it was in the fullness of time in the first advent, you will come again. And when you do, your power and glory will be displayed throughout the whole world and among all men, women, and children. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, may that be our confession as we go through this new year in expectation of seeing what you will do, what you have designed for 2024. And Lord, resting in the fact that all things are yours. Bless us, Lord, with that. Encourage our hearts by it. and Be glorified in it. We ask it in Jesus' name.